Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. We are hosting Nomeda and Gediminas Urbonas. They are artists and educators born in Lithuania and working together under the name of Urbonas Studio. Their artistic practice combines new media, urbanism, social science, ecology, and pedagogy to transform civic spaces and collective imaginaries. We'll start off the conversation focusing on their work on swamps that disregarded wealth of organic complexity and together unpack questions around ecology, technology and artistic practice. You'll also get to hear about their mode of operation within often contested social and political realities, hearing about how they started off and how they continued working within the university institutional complex will help us position notions of research and pedagogy in relation to cultural production. Since Gediminas is a professor at the MIT program in art, culture and technology, and Nomeda is also an MIT research affiliate. We also delve into their wide output, including public moments of exposure, which they call interfaces, that include many participations in large-scale exhibitions as well as exhibitions of their own, and their publications, such as the forthcoming book, Swamps and the New Imagination, on the future of cohabitation in art, architecture and philosophy, that's coming out from Sternberg Press and MIT Press in 2023. So let's start with the swamp, if you like, because that's the most recent work you've been engaged in. And I know that you've been working on this idea and context for a number of years. So it would be nice to hear from you. I mean, I see that you approach the swamp as a site, as a kind of ecosystem or biosphere, but also as a potentially a model. Let's start with how the interest about the swamp emerged and what were the kind of progression of events that led you to deeper and deeper focus on the swamp? Great. So, yeah, the swamp. Um, so, you know, it's never starting just because of one trigger or one point. In our work, you know, we're always waiting for this critical accumulation of several triggers. But with the swamp project, uh, I think it all kind of like started... Uh, our interest in rivers, in estuaries, in uh, so-called ecotones or riparian territories between the land and the water. And um, on one hand, on the other hand, uh, we were also observing the extraction and expulsion and also uh, draining of the swamps that uh, literally takes uh, with the urban expansion, you know, in many cities and also throughout the history of the modernity. And uh, perhaps the final kind of like trigger was the political rhetoric in 2016 American elections and this very audacious statement, drain the swamp. So without going into the reasons uh, of that election, but we started to look into, into the swamp as the irritant subject. 
We looked into why for political readers such as Mussolini, Drenaria, Della Palude, it's important, you know, and what's three of this rhetoric that has roots in the 19th century, actually. And uh, looking into the swamp as an irritant subject, we thought that, uh, you know, it's not like forest, it's not ocean, it's not uh, marsh, you know, but, uh, but it's irritant subject of the swamp should be put into the center of the attention. So basically, it was this critical accumulation. And therefore, also the swamp, even by Latour, is also seen as a critical zone. The critical zone is it reaches this kind of like critical moment in terms of extraction, but also critical because of its potentiality, actually, to critically engage with matters surrounding us. I just wanted to add a, a little more practical note, maybe. <laughs> With all what Gerinas mentioned, uh, or along with all that, it also coincided with the invitation in 2017 for us to curate the Lithuanian uh, national representation at the Venice Biennale Architecture Exhibition. So in a way, you know, we were looking for a subject which could not only like separate us as nation or as a state from the others, but on the opposite, maybe like unite us and somehow like broader than just nation states, you know, boundaries. Oh, that makes sense. And also Venice is almost like an amphibian city. So, but I think this irritant subject, as you call it, is also has been in discourse of the modernity for a very long time. And also in America, I mean, I know that George Washington had a swamp draining infrastructure company. And, you know, there's all this kind of history and rhetoric, but the swamp seems to reemerge all the time. And that's partly, I guess, due to the kind of wealth of life within it. So could you expand on like, how did you as the Urbana studio tackle the swamp? And maybe we can start with the Venice Biennale and how did you then uh, create this series of projects, which also maybe act as a swamp? Yeah, so as Namela mentioned, uh, with the invitation to Venice Biennale Architecture Exhibition, you know, as many artists or architects who are proposing uh, or invited, you know, to, uh, to propose something, they have to deal with the question of the national representation. And in this sense, uh, Swan was interesting for us as disobeying the national boundaries, as leaking beyond the national boundaries. Also, um, as something that is being irritant subject, not only within the political rhetoric, but also for the modernity itself, as it is a hybrid subject. It is neither water nor a land. So throughout the modernity, swamps were uh, drained and making them into useful agricultural fields or, or waterways, you know. So, so to make, how could, uh, how could sort of like moderns make the swamps into the useful matter? So not seeing actually, the swamps as important destination for the diversity um, uh, of the species uh, or the habitat um, or the destination for the scientific or artistic and philosophical inquiry. This uh, has become irritating subject for us, you know, so, so we got irritated, you know, and, uh, and for us to bring the swamp into the center of attention in Venice, given that Venice, uh, as you rightfully observed, is actually in the middle of the swamp itself and developed its own kind of like legacy as the city being built in this impossible place. So for us, this was kind of like a task 
uh, how could we learn from the swamp? We were talking about the swamp as the irritant subject and also a kind of ecosystem that many living things thrive, but also in dealing with an irritant subject, you were saying that you were also becoming irritated. And I'm curious, how did you tackle that irritation? And I know that especially in the Venice pavilion and afterwards you brought on many other uh, actors and scientists and artists, other people into the process. So maybe we can expand a little bit on that, how the growth of the Swamp Project occurred in your case. So for Venice, we did not want you to call it Lithuanian Pavilion. Before our pavilion two years earlier in 2016, there was a Baltic Pavilion when the you know, three Baltic states, uh, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania came together and intentionally call it uh, not after the nation state, but after the ecosystem that connects them together, the Baltic Sea. So calling the pavilion Baltic meant kind of like to look into what connects uh, these countries, you know, in terms of infrastructural links, you know, like whether looking into the history, imperial infrastructure, the colonial infrastructure, and so on and so forth, you know, left from the Soviet past, you know, and how the changing ecosystem of the Baltic Sea could also be embraced as the identity uh, that connects and uh, not separates, but more like connects, you know, and where the commonalities could be expanded. You know. So in a way, we also were inspired by that, so, but we wanted to take it further. We said, what could be more than the sea? And also seeing certain tendency, uh, let's be honest, you know, there was a certain tendency in the, in the arts world uh, looking into the ocean, with ocean space opening in Venice, you know, and many artists jumping suddenly into the ocean, you know, like we thought that, hmm, ocean is too nice and uh, too beautiful. And we need to kind of like really look into the dirt, look what is, what is below our feet. And look at the marginal, something that is <laughs> abandoned and no, forgotten. By the tendencies, right? Uh, so what is in the margin of the tendencies or what is overlooked by the tendencies? And that was kind of like this long maligned and denigrated uh, swamp, the mud, you know, that's something that moderns didn't see any use, you know, and uh, and even if you look at, uh, at the histories, you know, like uh, whether it could be Bible or other religions, there is always this desire to kind of uh, either the make the desert into the beautiful garden or make uh, this kind of like wasteland or the swamp into, into the useful, uh, beautiful orchard. This is sort of like very humane desire, it seems, but also the desire that comes with a certain regimes of governmentality over the nature, where the human-centered uh, uh, and anthropocentric sort of like subject rules out any other perspectives, rules out any other logics, uh, whether it would be the desert or the wasteland or a swamp or marsh or, or kind of like so-called disorganized mud. So we started to sort of like look for the arguments how in this uh, so-called wasteland or disorganized mud, we could find a certain intelligence, if you will, by saying that could be accused or critiqued by anthropomorphization of the, of the natural. But for us, this kind of like intelligence uh, was almost like also um, a will to flirt with uh, overwhelming take on the artificial intelligence. So can we sort of like find intelligence in the mud? Can we find intelligence in the swamp that could resist 
overwhelming artificial intelligence. And uh, going to Venice also for us meant uh, to engage with the local ecosystem, learn from the lagoon, learn from the history of the city, and also put the participants in the close proximity with the material surrounding you know, them. So the material of the city that uh, not necessarily can be found in the beaten paths or beaten roads uh, of the tourists, you know, but outside of that, in the margins of the, of the Venice, in the Barenas, in this not... Uh, maybe used uh, patches uh, of soil, of plants, you know, that is like lurking under the water. I don't know where the swamp pavilion was, but I'm thinking of the Giardini, for example, is probably the most pedicured space you can imagine and so how did you make that portal in a sense how did you take the people to these edges and margins yeah so the swamp school was joined by very many participants and uh, also interlocutors as we call them so there were like you know several uh, artists and and architects and sound musicians you could say or composers whom we invited depending on the chapter of the Swamp School, because we decided to have like three chapters. First one, Swamp Radio, would focus more on the creating of space with sound or perceiving the space, you know, through the sound. And it was like focusing on transmitting. And listening. Listening to the environment. So we had like several workshops with uh, Jana Winderen and Sam Unger, and um, but I guess I'm curious about the materiality because I didn't see the pavilion. So I'm curious like how it manifests itself. Yeah, so basically a big part of the activities were outside of any like architectural space, let's say. But we also had a headquarters, as we call them. We had like a, some kind of venue with like a small courtyards and the uh, uh, spaces usually it functions as a gallery but we called it headquarters we needed to have the meeting point where the participants could come and have the swamp tea which is the marsh labrador tea from uh, from canada that was brought by the indigenous people from there and then after having the tea in the morning the tutors or the instructors who uh, in the swamp radio case were the sound artists would take participants of the swamp school out in the laguna with the small boats uh, we would uh, we would go there like for example before the sunset uh, or sunrise. the su sunrise and experience the how the sound travels uh, depending on the temperature learning listening with the limbs listening for the bones uh, learning listening also to the frequencies that uh, are not heard by the human ear that would require technical apparatus so it was like this variety of different listening techniques to the environment and uh, including like listening with the technology and listening and using your body as a technology but it was also different other techniques like transmitting so for example Nicole Hulier, she constructed the pirate radio, which was like functioning as a receiver, but also as a transmitter. So you could go around in the lagoon and transmit the sounds for like maybe almost four kilometers around Venice. So it was like kind of functioning as a pirate radio on the spot. 
And then back in the pavilion, as Nomeda mentioned, we had also the model of the plant community. We were working with the botanists who are involved in uh, restoration of the wetlands in Lithuania. And uh, we brought a model of the swamp to Venice, actually a living model. So that was um, maybe uh, 10 on... Uh, on um, maybe more, even 15 meters or yeah. 15 meters. Some kind of the smallest... Uh, Possible. A functioning model uh, possible. And fully functioning as a swamp or as a replica of a swamp? Functioning as a swamp in terms of the filtration, in terms of the toxicity, and also in terms of the relations, uh, symbiotic relations uh, between the species and living and non-living, minerals and soil. And for us, it was also important to have that uh, not only sort of like as a proof of life, and uh, but also as a destination for care, as we had to sort of like tame uh, and uh, in a way create relation with that, with that living uh, creature, the swamp itself, and also secure that it is uh, thriving uh, and it can withstand uh, different climatic conditions. So in a way, Swamp agriculture. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very interesting. And I'm thinking about something that's so unmanageable, but then trying to both see it as a model for like how life forms can live together and then also making a model of it to then also manifest or observe those life forms kind of living together. There's something interesting in that loop, I think. And I'm curious, like, what happened afterwards? This because it seems like you transplanted it from somewhere. Did it remain in Venice or did it go anywhere else? Or was it planted as a swamp? Yeah, actually, the model looks really great in that courtyard. And we kind of like thought or we dreamed what the owner will also like it and maybe she will keep it. But of course, it like requires quite a maintenance, you know. Of course, you have to water it or like actually measure, you know, different parameters and just like require some care. So, of course, it was maybe too much to ask. Then we found like through the links with the community, with the locals, we found like there is a big interest actually of the local farmers in the, you know, plants and the material in the earth as such, you in know, the in the peat also. So, yeah, it was like this amazing farmer, uh, Mr. Angelo, Angelo from uh, San Erasmo Island. Island, who came with his boat, I don't know, maybe like more than 20 times perhaps from San Erasmo to Venice. After Biennale ended, he was like, you know, coming from the island to the pavilion and back, you know, carrying the piece by piece all this swamp into his like a land, into his territory, and he rebuilt it. He added okay. layers of peat into his garden, extending this uh, garden of the blue artichokes. You know, San Erasmo is famous for the blue artichokes. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, we visited him several years after that, and we saw the how the plants are thriving. Uh, so the plants also, there was not only peat, but there were also plants brought, the Nordic pine and also the Nordic birch, um, and, uh, you know, like those that are growing very, very uh, small, almost like a bonsai, kind of like <laughs> a little bit maybe bigger because uh, of the acidity in the peat. So in a way, it is very precarious condition for any plants, you know, to grow in the swamp. It takes many, many years and that's why they're very, very they're never growing tall they're never growing full size you know also uh, specific plants uh, the uh, sundew 
those are the carnivorous plants that are thriving on the flesh, you know, like they are luring the insects uh, into their flowers and they're trying to capture them and digest them because it's simply the soil is not nutritious enough, you know, so they have to take the nutrition from the ear. So, uh, so the swamps are developing this very intricate ecosystem and, uh, techniques um, and the techniques because they, they cannot just rely on the root system uh, to, for the nutrition. And of course, the, here there was the experiment uh, whether this, uh, these plants would actually survive a traveling down 2,000 kilometers to the south and the climate is different. But then discussing with biologists, we found out that actually it is a quite interesting paradox, but plants in the swamp and plants in the desert, they have certain similarities. You know, so the extreme wet and extreme dry environment conditions uh, plants to survive or whether there is a drought or whether there is also, you know, whether there is extreme condition, right? So, you know, so, so swamps, for example, you know, like when they're drying out, you know, like the, the plants can survive long time and, uh, yeah. and there are like these uh, plants that can be dried out for maybe couple one, of years. couple of years yeah. and again, you know, like given the humidity, they can start thriving. such a transplantation in an age where like the invasive species discussion is so like often re-emerging is also I think bold <laughs> I'm curious like what this intervention will lead to in the long run but I think now I have a better understanding of what you mean by swamp intelligence as well it's the kind of the inner techniques of swamp and all the life forms and also non-living entities cohabiting to maintain or develop these techniques if i understand correctly and that makes sense i mean swamps for me had like two kind of very different connotations or moments in my mind one is like i once heard about this story of the maroons who were slaves who escaped and settled in the great dismal swamp and they were organized resistance towards slavery but they would inhabit the swamp and their motto was like safer among alligators than white people. So it always for me swamp had that again like the idea of the margin and the marginal, but also a kind of site that can host the marginal, not only a marginal site, but a site that can host the marginal. And the second image I have, I mean I'm just like sharing these, but I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Alan Moore, the graphic novel author. During the 80s he did this big series of the comics called Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing can be like up and down, but Alan Moore's Swamp Thing was I think really phenomenal. And I remember this scene because the Swamp Thing ends up having a lover, but the woman is then arrested for being a, the lover of the Swamp Thing. And the cause of her arrest is crimes against humanity. So already in the 80s, I think he was thinking about this kind of, I mean, the whole series is very Gaia-esque and very trippy, but I think this moment of like interspecies relating to the other, like having a relation with the marginal and how it's not welcome and the swamp is always the that image of the unwanted in a sense, and it's almost against humanity that I, I've always found that image. Like I found that image, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we have these reference cards, you know. Like, Great. Will it be in the book? 
Yeah. yeah, we have these reference cards and definitely both of the references that you mentioned, you know, they were absolutely important for us to conceive the swamp uh, school. Definitely a swamp as the refuge uh, for the runaway slaves, you know, being sort of like in danger with venomous snakes and alligators, you know, was much more better than, than living in the white man's world and developing coexistence, actually, with the danger or what, uh, what I don't know if, if that would be appropriate to paraphrase Donna Haraway staying with the trouble, you know, but, but in a way, like living in this kind of like uh, supposedly non-humane conditions, actually, it is like a uh, paradox. It is much more humane than, than living in this kind of like civilized human's world. So these paradoxes of the swamp definitely were interest, uh, interested and also inspiration well, from this new world, you know, I should also quote um, Torah, you know, who wrote that hope and the future for me are not in the lawns uh, and cultivated fields, not in towns and cities, but in the imperious and quacking swamps. So uh, as we know, Torah in the Walden Pond, uh, he spent much time actually strolling and observing. And also in his diary, you can find beautiful drawings, actually of observation, the estuaries, the uh, bodies of the water, and the swamps. So we had like several points of inspiration, several points of reference that uh, perhaps not all we managed to utilize in the swamp school for the five months, but that material was feeding our work afterwards. So things that developed as a swamp observatory, collaboration with Latour and uh, Weibel at ZKM, also Swamp Game, and the most recent iteration of the Swamp Observatory in Sweden, which is uh, conceived as an AR app. Maybe from cohabitation, we can move on to discussing a little bit like working together. In a sense, I mean, you've been working together as a duo for many, many years, but also I know that you, you mentioned already like many names and also you mentioned other artists, but also thinkers such as Bruno Latour. So I wonder if you can speak about a little bit like your ethos of working together and also working together with multiple actors and also working together with sites or ecologies in the old cases that we discussed. Yeah, so... We started to work together, I think, more than three decades ago, perhaps. And we were running the first artist-run space in Vilnius since 1993. So this was like our first, uh, perhaps, space where we you know, started to do everything by ourselves. And in a way, it was happening in this very you know, specific moment in time when changes, you know, Socio-political changes happened in in Eastern Europe and in particular in Lithuania. In a way, we wanted to resist, you know, the old model or all old models, including the also like the single male genius artists who would always work alone in the studio. So as far as I remember myself as a conscious artist, I always wanted to do something opposite of that, what we saw around us in the in the art school when we were growing. So this idea of organizing ourselves and working with other artists uh, was very present from the very early moment in our lives. Gediminas was also part of the performance group, Shalas Lapas, was still in the Art Academy. I was also collaborating with my female classmates in the school and 
And then together we were running this space. I think it makes sense also to mention history, you know, like the transition from the socialist to capitalist uh, state, you know, like collapse of the Soviet Union, end of the war in Afghanistan, uh, the Chernobyl disaster, 86, you know. So these kind of like events informed uh, our practice. We started to look for the forms of the coming together, uh, forms of collective action. So, of course, as the matter said, we were reflecting what, uh, what is going on in the art world and, uh, and the field of art in terms of the individual signature, the hero, kind of like uh, autonomous uh, figure and, uh, and lonely writer and so on and so forth. But at the same time, also 80s were saturated, you know, with the collectives and uh, and also collectives of the different kinds, uh, hybridities, uh, groups, and so on. And this was also uh, contingent on the political events, you know, so it was not just kind of like reflecting into the art world, you know, but also reflecting what is happening in the politics and how you can create new forms of the living together, also uh, new forms of sustainability, whatever that means, if you will and also forms of self-organization and self-education, not relying on the old structures and maybe being suspicious about the forthcoming ones. Maybe also we were inspired at that time by Homi Bhabha and his third way kind of politics. So there was some kind of like utopian spirit in the year that we tried to sort of like grab. And that's where all this collaborative spirit was emerging from. So we started to work together, but also we would open up this uh, to other people, other artists, and also specialists from other fields. Another important notion was at that time, again, maybe now I would call it differently, you know, but at that time was interdisciplinarity, you know, sort of like, so how do you smuggle the knowledge between the fields of the discipline, how you contaminate the boundaries, how you sort of like leak the, the knowledge, you know, uh, uh, beyond the sort of like the, the disciplinary borderlines, whatever it safeguards it, you know. So so that, you know, so we started to, in the very early, like, you know, we started to also work with television, we started to work with online platforms in the 90s, um, also worked uh, with uh, women intellectuals, you know, feminists coming from different fields, also with psychiatrists. So our first kind of like projects were really trying to articulate the notion of the platform where artwork itself could actually liberate from the artistic control and become independent and has its own life become maybe sometimes institution, organization. You know, at that time, we also coined this notion of uh, organizational aesthetics. Can we sort of like uh, script the action and script sort of like the certain uh, movements in time in such a way that it would become organizational uh, infrastructure that is completely independent from us, you know, but, but can take life of its own. That's very interesting. And I think I kind of linked that to the following decades of your work and also your approach to experimentation, but also working within a university context. The university context sometimes also really allows these kind of interactions and in a way larger scale research project. So did you already have the interest in science and technology and these kind of structures when you were thinking about the platforms or did the platforms lead you to operating in this manner? Yeah, we were interested in technology from very, very early on. We always were interested in technology. As soon as we could like press the button, you know, we were interested in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Mehmet is making a joke. 
you know, like there was this famous saying, like art finishes when you press the button. So uh, this is like very kind of like context specific joke, but uh, yeah, but uh, about so, the yeah about the resistance of the death of painting. Yeah, but I think now, of course, we we are talking from this comfortable position uh, being uh, at university, research university, but. Uh, but actually, this was not our kind of like desire or aim. You know, sometimes you ending up not necessarily where you really uh, desire. You know, like and uh, it's a paradox of life. And actually, you know, before coming to MIT, we were working at Norwegian University of Science and Technology, and that was also almost like pure coincidence. You know, like we ended up. So, yeah, but like we we were in touch with people. You know, who work with technology always, and we were like just interested. You know, in new media arts in the 90s because this was like some kind of promise you know what there there could be like another way of like you know doing things and so naturally outside of that world yes yeah but uh, but maybe what what makes sense to say that we were looking into into certain spaces that can sustain um, artistic inquiry whether we call it research whether we call it intelligence and uh, and actually let's be honest um academic and especially research institutions, you know, they have that kind of support. They have that kind of condition that can engage in the research processes and like in the in the durational research processes more than actually uh, exhibitions or biennials because they are, they just simply have the du limited duration in terms of preparation, in terms of the running cycle. And at the end, uh, Okay, with a few exceptions, but most of the creators are always asking this question. So what do you have to hang on the wall? And that is kind of like, it's traumatizing question, you know, like for the artists, because maybe we want to rethink the hanging. Maybe we want to rethink the art. Maybe we want to rethink the wall. And, and maybe we want to rethink even like the institution, why it should be like hang anything on the wall. So in that sense, research university offers you more of these possibilities. In terms of operation, the way you build up the projects, I mean, I appreciate and I think there is really value in being able to do a long-term durational project and the way you treat what I think you call them interfaces, like these moments of exposure along the way also makes sense, which is, I think, a strong alternative to both, let's say, publishing papers in academic context and also doing exhibitions in artistic context, but it's something else as far as I'm observing. So these interfaces happen along the way, but I'm curious also like how you build up the ideas, do, like from the, how you explain the swamp, it seemed to me like it's also iterative, that it's also like each step leads to the next one, kind of exploration. But do you have a, this is a big generalization, but do you often have a, like a vision for like where it will lead or do you let it evolve along the way? Maybe I can ask it that way. Mm, that's a, yeah, <laughs> difficult question, but to answer shortly, we develop that type of state of mind when you, in a way, have a certain vision, but you are open enough for the inputs which come along when you go through the research. Yeah, we always start with certain intuition. We call it artistic intuition. When you kind of like feel, you have like many something comes from before something comes from the previous projects and some knowledge you know we already have and then there is some kind of intuition which leads us where do we want to go 
But at the same time, we have to stay very, very open because, you know, we have to notice many details which basically later would shape one or the other form of the embodiment of the project. And also be open for those inputs and be kind of open for the project kind of transforming or changing shape along the way as well. Yes, definitely. So maybe this could be a, like a nice moment to also have input from our own small group of participants. Ahali conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. I would like to get back a bit to your personal and artistic histories. Uh, so I'm running a project space in Istanbul since five years, and I know that you founded a space in the 90s called Jutempus. It was active for a few years. So like, there are not a lot of information about Jutempus. So I thought it would make sense to ask you a question about one of the earliest works or projects of yours, maybe to tell your personal histories a little bit. So this was a period that project spaces were not as familiar. I mean, like I'm a millennial, so we had a lot of examples at hand to be inspired from. You could introduce a bit of history of Shutampus. Yes, so Utampus started as an interesting moment because uh, this was 90s, just beginning of independence, and uh, uh, the state, of course, was going through the changes, you know, from the plant economy to the private market, to the market and private property. And, you know, we had like lots of uh, infrastructural changes also happening in the cities. So one of those were like cultural places, which were, you know, palaces and houses of different unions. In that case, we came across this call from the Ministry of Culture, which was calling for a programming of the former cultural house of railway workers. So basically like a 2,500 square meters house was empty and Ministry of Culture didn't know what to do with that, you know, because it had like many of these type of, you know, houses. Empty and they needed to be like transformed somehow before they get privatized. So, yes. So, this is like a social space for the railway workers where they could gather and in the Soviet era. Yes. And you know, have their own program. Yeah. Like they have you know, different activities. So, they were no longer there and everything was like dismantled. So, the house was empty. And there was a competition for the programming of that place. It was very clear for us that these former cultural houses will be very soon uh, taken down and maybe some uh, shopping malls or supermarkets or hotels or uh, real estate speculation will be developed in, the, in their places. So A, for us, was important, you know, to create, uh, to kind of like to sustain the cultural uh, activity, you know, like to, in the city, you know, if, you, if you're thinking of the city sort of like as the 
uh, as the organism, you know, like there are these uh, spots, you know, and cultural spots that are very important to sustain. So this was sort of like the starting point for the Utempus. Uh, and we imagined actually from the beginning that we make it into the interdisciplinary center. And we call it program at the time, you know, like we didn't call it center because, you know, we were interested in decentering things. So so we, we said like we better call it program. And the reason why we call program because we're interested in the programming language at the time. So we're thinking, you know, we're, we're playing with these notions of scripting, of programming, not just imagining programmers in the concept program, but as a programming. And our first activities was the Gender Studies uh, Center, directed by Carlo Gruadis, uh, who also translated to Lithuanian uh, Simone de Beauvoir, and also um, the feminist anthology. She was Canadian scholar. Um, and um, also uh, we had experimental theater, we had experimental cinema, experimental music. So it was like really very multidisciplinary uh, endeavor. And, uh, and within that, we were running the visual and media art kind of like chapter. And our first uh, things uh, were exchanges with uh, Nordic artists, giving the proximity to the Nordic countries. Also, our first uh, thing was the exchange with the British artists that resulted in this book, uh, Ground Control, uh, Technology and Utopia. And this started in 95. So we were collaborating with Beaconsfield in London, also Newcastle upon time with the Baltic flour mills that is uh, today is known as, uh, in Gateshead, today is known as Baltic contemporary art space. Uh, but this is like, before the contemporary art, you know, like this was just abandoned flour mill full of rats and pigeons. And uh, and we were really interested in how the coming technologies are shaping the cultural landscape, shaping the artistic practices. Um, so, so our idea was that we would perhaps build the media lab in that uh, former cultural uh, house of the railway workers, right? Uh, so this is like very much like 95, 96, 97. So that was the change with the British artists. We also had the first uh, festival of performance art in um, 95, 96. That was international, you know, performance art was really huge in Eastern Europe and of uh, 80s, you know, artists from former Yugoslavian countries, Hungary, uh, former Czechoslovakia, and, you know, um, former Soviet republics, you know, there was a big movement in the media arts and also in the performance art. Basically from the, from the 80, 86, basically from the start of the perestroika, you know, in Soviet Union, you know. So these kind of like things somehow find its forms of landing in that program and within that programming. And within that space, we really intentionally said what, we would like to show the art, let's say, if you want to call it, which would not be shown uh, anywhere else in the city. So basically, like, you know, we could like do many things in the space which were not in a way allowed at that time, you know, in the already, let's say, established, you know, art spaces. Although it was the like, very beginning for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, so there were like also some um, some installations, for example, with the real animals and uh, and some hallucinogenic plants and the moonshine project. Yeah, that was like forbidden, like in in the in the city center, and the installation was arrested by the police. You know, so we were working on this edge, you know, between the research and the action research, and also 
scandal, if you will, and uh, crime, pushing boundaries, what is allowed, what is not allowed, uh, and in a way playing with the double agency of art. Perhaps, you know, like through the arts, uh, as some of the sociologists, as we know, claiming that maybe through the art, we can experience real democracy, right? So we try to sort of like use this double agency of art to instigate events, uh, well, not only in the building, also outside, uh, and also kind of like bring the diverse audiences. The In fact, the site itself, you know, this house uh, is located next to the railway station. In, and as you know, like typically in the cities, these areas are, you know, populated by these uh, grand diversities and, uh, and pluralist kind of like, you know, cultural and uh, civic practices, you know. So at that time, it was really considered as dirty area, kind of like, drug dealers, prostitution, crime, organized crime, you know, the 90s, like, was really rough, uh, times. rough times. And um, in the house itself, you know, like, Ministry of Culture, they just said, like, you can use the house, but to be with a condition that you will never ask for money how to run it. So we had gangsters actually renting our spaces. And, uh, you know, so we had, like, you know, like, it was really interesting and very vibrant uh, time where you kind of like had to negotiate survival, life, and uh, actually convince the gangsters that what we're doing makes sense. Yeah, but at the same time, it was like really a very good school for us to learn how to like really survive and how to manage and how to run the space, how to find money, how to write the applications, how to, you know, like do the flyer, design the flyer, how to write the press release and, you know, so on, so on and so forth. So basically it was like the school for us. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I mean, it's a good historical insight, but also this notion of learning through doing and also or learning in public kind of situation is always inspiring. So thanks. Thanks, Sarp, for the question. Do you have more or does anybody want to add something? Any comments, any questions? I have one more note, uh, like, which is also at the intersection point of us three through the Disobedience Archive, recently presented at the Istanbul Biennial, in which uh, a work by Nomadan Gidiminas, uh, like, there are multiple works, but like there is one uh, about which I would like to ask a question. Would you maybe touch on your relationship with uh, Mel King? And uh, since on this season of Ahali podcast, we are focusing about uh, like different spatial variables and their relationship with social practices to a certain extent, maybe like discussing a little bit the tent city would make sense. So we started actually to change with uh, Marco Scottini uh, in 2007. We were sending him documentation on the protest lab from Castle. And, uh, and then the protest lab, our project uh, uh, that was about the civic action in order to safeguard public space, and namely the modernist cinema theater in Vilnius, that's another building. Not far away from the railway house, uh, we have this attachment to the cultural heritage and uh, so and real estate and yeah and real estate attachment interest in the real estate yeah we are real estate artists in fact but um with marcos coutini they started you know this exchange in 2006 2007 through this disobedience archive uh, collection of the video works that are looking into the important uh, political moments uh, in different uh, 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 worldly global destinations uh, and uh, from seven, 70s to today 
and also ability of the artist to intervene with the camera and create uh, inquiry, debate, discussion, democratic moment, publicness, uh, so to speak. And in 2011, uh, or maybe 2010, 2011, when we started to teach at NABA uh, as a visiting lecturers, we started to discuss the possibility of bringing Disobedience Archive to Boston. And it beautifully coincided with actually Occupy. So Occupy started in the summer of 2011, and Disobedience Archive opened in the fall of 2011. So Marco Scutini and Andres Brinkmanis, you know, they both came to Boston. We met with uh, Naomi Klein and um, we got, I'm blanking all the people that we met at the time. But anyway, the question was about Mel King. So Mel King was playing an important role in our contribution to Disobedience Archive, so-called Boston Chapter. So we created Boston Chapter. We put two classes at, uh, at ACT, the uh, Art, Culture and Technology Program at MIT, where we're working. And... Uh, we went to the 10th city with the students. You know, we went also to the 10th city uh, that was in Boston. During the Occupy, yeah, not uh, the original 10th city. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Although and then, and then with Mel King is African-American scholar who was one of the first African-Americans to graduate from the Department of Urban Studies and Planning in the 60s at MIT. And he built uh, his sole practice working in South Boston uh, in this so-called marginalized and disenfranchised neighborhood. So uh, at, at the time of the Black Panther movement, uh, he managed to create legislation. He became legislator. He became member of the Boston City Hall. And he had a vision you know, like for how the city should be organized. And his legislation was to safeguard uh, urban gardens as a places of food production, of sustainable food production, and also as places where the access to food could be affordable for the disenfranchised population in the cities. So, um, so this was happening in the times of the civic unrest and, and civic movement, civic right movement in 68 and 69 in Boston, where a lot of violent events happened. And, uh, and one of the major programmatic things for the Black Panther was to safeguard the access to food for the African-American kids. So Mel King was playing an important role as a planner, as a legislator, and also a person who had the vision for the fruit trees to be grown instead of decorative trees in the city. And also to safeguard the public gardens so they would not be, they would never become um, sort of like subject for the redevelopment, right? So, so they would like stay as kind of like untouchable territories. So we wanted to bring Mel King uh, to the discussion with uh, Marco Scottini and also with Silvera Lottringer. So we organized uh, several panels uh, that were accompanying the exhibition. Exhibition that uh, I'm sure that you're familiar from, uh, not only, uh, well, from Istanbul Biennial, but also from other exhibitions as the project was traveling since 2005 or six. But our contribution was the Boston chapter, you know, so we were looking into the histories of resistance in Boston. Mostly in the history of gardens. Yeah. Sites of resistance. Boston Urban Gardens, uh, yeah, of uh, sites of resilience and sites of struggles. And also, partially, we also were looking into the histories of resistance at MIT and at Harvard as they were the, these political moments in 69, you know. So, yeah, so this is just a few words about, um, about this contribution. Thanks. I think this opened up a really good window, both into your research and your engagement with uh, where you are. 
I think in both cases, but also in relation to like how to think about public space, how to think about public infrastructure. And in a way, I think it resonated with your uh, reply to the previous question, like how to not maneuver, but navigate and kind of make sure that certain things are leading in a certain direction. So that was really good to hear. Thanks so much. Also, just a side note, with regards to the culture palaces and culture houses and also the architectural legacy of uh, the Soviet era, late Soviet era, and how it was, in a way, became a site of struggle for many urban activists in many post-Soviet states, was also one of the topics that we discussed in our episode with Georg Scholhammer, the Austrian curator has been doing research Ruben Aravshatian on many different Soviet states. And so that was also a really nice link. And with the Boston, we had previously Design Studio for Social Intervention. I don't know if you know them. So that was also a, another nice link uh, through the history of Boston and public spaces of Boston. So those, those two were like really uh, good to hear. Uh, thank you so much, Nomeda. Thank you so much, Gediminas. Really great to have you both. Thank you, Khan, and thank you, sir, for yeah inviting us. And uh, it was really a pleasure to uh, talk to you. I yes. hope I hope really it makes sense for the audience who are listening. And uh, do not hesitate to get in touch if you have any further questions. Bye bye. Ahali Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprenk Özer, with Derya Yıldız as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Arda Karaburçak with music by Group Ses. This season of Ahali Conversations is supported by the Graham Foundation, with additional support on this episode from a Moon and Stars project grant. Now I know everybody's after your likes and subscribes and follows in this attention economy, but it would really help us reach more ears if you just simply let a friend know. Thank you and see you next time.